This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We welcome you to Real Talk. It's uh, Jesperson and John Hicks. On a show that's going to move fast, we're going to talk about uh, issues that are relevant and of interest in our own backyard. We're going to take a look at a couple of national news stories, and we will head across the pond today is uh, probably the, the world's most prominent royal correspondent, Valentine Lowe from The Times, is going to join us live from London. We're going to get a sense of how... Harry's bombshells are landing in London. Will he be invited to King Charles' coronation? What's going to happen with the brothers, with Harry and William? We'll have that conversation coming up in about a half hour's time. The technical producer of this show, John Hicks, hey. you divulged to me just a couple of minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have seen the Harry and Meghan Netflix special. It was oh, yeah. one that you, that you binge watched. What was what was one takeaway from that special that I know millions of people have checked out? Yeah, me and my partner, Jatinder, burned through it last night. One takeaway I didn't know is the, is the relationship between the media in the UK, uh, which I'm sure Valentine will uh, get into when yeah. he's on the show, and the royal family. It really is like a contract. It really is something the media kind of... It doesn't schedule their day-to-day life, but basically, you know, if you don't come out, if you don't look great, if you don't give them the poses they like, the headlines tend to run negative for them. So it really is this back and forth where give and take, and uh, you really kind of see the downfall of where Megan kind of wouldn't play game with that all the time. I was telling you, you know, when the royal family, when the... When the uh, when the women have kids, they yeah. always stand on the st- same step outside the same hospital hours after they give birth with a big smile. And that was the one thing Meghan Markle did not do. She flew back to, of course, the States to her own doctor who she felt comfortable with in Portland. Yeah. And that was kind of a big turning point with her in the media where it was like, hey, you're not doing things the way we normally do them. Things are going to get kind of messy. Interesting. So, yeah. I've, I've seen some people speculate saying that, you know, Harry's book, his, his recent book has has been, uh, you know, selling. I mean, sold like more than a million and a half copies early on and it was leading bestsellers uh, charts. And I know that a lot of people wanted to check it out. Yet his popularity has been down in the UK. And I'll look forward to Valentine's insight in this. And, and a lot of the pundits and a lot of those that sort of pay attention to this story most are saying, he doesn't care necessarily about, I mean, it's easy to say he doesn't care about where his popularity is at. I mean, I'd like to hear that from his mouth, but they're saying America is his target market now. Mm-hmm. So a plummet in popularity in Britain might not be perceived to be as damaging as you might expect. So that's coming up in about a half an hour's time. I know that that's a story that people around the world pay attention to. Some of you will be like, I've lost my appetite for those types of stories. And, <laughs> yeah. and others of you will consume every bit of conversation you can about the royal family, uh, including those that that choose to walk away. It really is a remarkable step that that Harry and Meghan took uh, with their young family. And so, so that's coming up on the show. We lead, though, with the question, does harm reduction work? And that's a question I know that a lot of people ask when you're looking at government policy, when you're looking at health policy, you want to know, do the steps that are being taken, do the dollars that are being invested, are, are, are the hirings that are made, are the policies that are developed, are the partnerships that are forged, Are they going to work? Are they working in other jurisdictions? Have we seen case studies? And if they do work, why would we ever walk away from them, especially in a circumstance as dire 
as the opioid crisis. We see it across the country. We see it around the world. We were talking about it just last week on the show. We learned that in the United States, as an example, every eight minutes, somebody dies from a drug poisoning. Every eight minutes. The numbers have been trending up in Canada as well. In particular, for some reason, in Alberta and B.C., thousands of human beings are dying from drug poisoning. And those that don't die are obviously, and and pardon me for using tacky language here, but really taxing the resources of first responders, of firefighters, of EMTs, paramedics, and even police that become involved with multiple calls per shift, regardless of what city or what community they're serving. We've heard this from elected mayors and Reeves. We've heard this from city and town councilors. We've heard it from public health officials, and we've heard it from frontline workers, many of them real talkers that have sent emails into the show detailing to us the stress involved with what they're seeing. People at a point where a drug poisoning or an overdose is occurring multiple times in in one week. And of course, naloxone, a shot of naloxone potentially bringing somebody back temporarily But of course, not for good. Problems not being solved. Resources not there. Connections not being made with public health resources and people who use drugs. Now, you talk to the experts, those that are relying on science and evidence, and they'll tell you that harm reduction measures like supervised consumption services work. So why would you ever shut them down? Why would you defund them? This is a question that our leadoff panel today rolled with and i'm grateful that they've made time to share their findings with us if you want to follow along if you're streaming this live on youtube if you're listening via the mixler live streaming audio app we're going to punch the link to this study into our live chat on youtube and of course if you're listening later you'll find this in the show notes the episode description wherever you get your podcast or on youtube uh, through Athabasca University, and you can find it at news.athabascau.ca, the closure in southern Alberta of the Lethbridge safe consumption site. You remember this? Arches. We talked a lot about this. Well, it did create safety concerns. This, the finding of a study conducted with a team, including our three guests leading off this morning's show. Uh, Dr. Marta Marika Urbanic is an assistant professor at the Center for Criminological Research. Uh, at the University of Alberta's Department of Sociology. Her research is focused on violence, gangs, drugs, and police community relations. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Green is a criminologist and associate professor at Athabasca University, and her research is broadly focused on people's experiences and views of the adult and youth justice systems, policing, and drugs. And Dr. Katerina Meyer is an assistant professor at the University of Winnipeg's Department of Criminal Justice. She conducts research on people's experiences with the probation system, uh, policing, security, drug use, and public health approaches to crime and drugs. I guess by now you realize we've got three of Canada's foremost experts in the subject matter that we're going to be talking about. And friends, we're grateful that you've made time for us today. Uh, Dr. Green, why don't we start with you? How did the study happen? What was the impetus for getting this group of experts together? And how did the ball get rolling on this study? Well, thanks for having us today, Ryan. Uh, 
This study actually came about as a result of work uh, that we were doing in Calgary and Edmonton, looking at the experience of uh, folks who were accessing the safe consumption sites in those two cities. Um, at the time, uh, Arches Lethbridge site um, was open and we intended to expand the study. Uh, unfortunately, by the time we got there, it had been closed. So we pivoted and uh, decided, well, let's look and see what has happened, what's the impact being of the closure of the safe consumption site in Lethbridge uh, and its replacement with an overdose prevention site. So this, of course, Lethbridge serves as, a, I guess, an opportunity to conduct a case study, but of course we know that that's not the only city where these services have been offered. And so we do have some that continue to operate in Alberta. We have some that have been closed. And I know that there are a lot of communities that are really endeavoring to, to see them open there. I mean, I've, I've talked to mayors in some cities that are, that are desperate to see this type of resource because it has such an impact on the, on the greater community. Uh, Dr. Urbanic, what, when you bring, obviously every expert here is going to bring their own personal experience, their own area of interest, and, and, and certainly maybe a more honed in focus to a study like this. Uh, what did you bring specifically? So I've been fortunate that I've been able to conduct almost a thousand interviews with various hard to reach populations across the country, uh, individuals, which include in those involved in drugs, those involved in gangs, uh, individuals experiencing homelessness, prisoners. And so those experiences have really allowed me to kind of look at the totality of experiences that people on the streets, whether it's in Edmonton or in Calgary or in Lethbridge, experience uh, in trying to navigate various services and trying to navigate the very real challenges and struggles that they experience on a daily basis, including violence, including policing, and of course, trying to deal with their addictions as best as they can. Uh, Dr. Meyer, you uh, joining us from Winnipeg, thanks so much, or at least from Manitoba, uh, you're at the University of Winnipeg, as mentioned. Um, when you take a look at, at a story like this out of Alberta, in particular, the, the closure of the arches uh, site uh, in Lethbridge. Are, are, are there commonalities with, with how Manitoba is managing this? Is is Alberta a, a, a unique, you know, on an island of its own, so to speak, with regards to policy? What do you note from a couple provinces over to the east? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, when the three of us started talking about the research, I was involved in a separate study here in Manitoba looking at methamphetamine use. And we just immediately noticed so many synergies between our projects. Um, and common problems and common issues. Now, Winnipeg is an interesting city because we currently do not have a supervised consumption site. And there's been a lot of political debates and controversy whether Winnipeg uh, should have a supervised consumption site. So there were immediately a lot of issues um, that our studies had in common and that we wanted to tackle. And certainly, as you said, looking across jurisdictions and places is always important because there are these specific particularities when we look at different places. Why, what would be, uh, and I might be asking you a question that you're going to say, I need a half an hour to answer this, but but why doesn't Winnipeg have a supervised consumption service? It's a it's a major Canadian city. I would imagine that opioid addiction is, is uh, an issue there, like it is everywhere else, it seems, on planet Earth. Uh, what's standing in the way? Is there no political will? Is there an interesting public sentiment at play? What do you pick up? It's a very controversial issue. And there's opinions on both sides. They are proponents of a supervised consumption site in Winnipeg, harm reduction organizations, advocates pushing for supervised consumption. But 
as is the case with many controversial issues, there are also political voices who are against the supervised consumption side. And there are various reasons for why they're against it. Um, there's concerns about funding, there's concerns about location, there's concerns about potential negative uh, consequences of having a supervised consumption site in place. Now, fortunately, we have research that points to the many benefits of supervised consumption sites. But um, there's issues on both sides, and it's an ongoing issue. So I don't think it's the end in Winnipeg with the supervised consumption site. I think it's an issue that will keep following for a long time. Dr. Green, it's it's a reality when you talk about politics and health policy, uh, sometimes they intersect out of out of necessity or out of political priorities. Uh, obviously, funding uh, comes as a result of government budgets. And, and, and so this is where we are. Uh, your area of expertise in particular focuses on people's experiences. And when you're telling a story or when you're looking to to gain political support for something or community support for something, oftentimes individual experiences are the most compelling. I would imagine that through the course of your career and your interviews, you've, you've spoken to many, many people who have moved you, whose stories have made an impact on you. Is there one person's story that you often reference when you're endeavoring to maybe change somebody's mind, somebody who might not initially support a supervised consumption service? Uh, really, there is not one person. It is everyone that we speak to has a unique story. Uh, and so it is, you know, all of the participants that we work with, uh, you know, their, their knowledge and their experience really sort of shapes, you know, what we're seeing and, and, and kind of the conclusions that we come to, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, how we communicate those experience experiences to others to inform policy, really for us, it's just about ensuring that we're collecting the evidence uh, and, and providing it to policymakers so that they have it at their disposal to, to create you know, effective uh, policy. So when you talk, when you take a look and, and, and I want to, obviously I'll put this to the panel, but Dr. Green, maybe you can kick us off and then, and then I'll invite the other two of you to chime in. Uh, you interviewed, my understanding is at least 50 people that were utilizing this site in Lethbridge. Um, can, can you set the scene for people that haven't maybe followed the story week to week that don't totally understand what happened there? Like, let, you know, let's sort of shine some light on it. There was, there was an allegation that there were some, some financial, uh, you know, shenanigans going on there, whether that was true or not. It gave the government at the time, uh, I think the room that it needed to pull funding from that service. And it was no secret. Um, if I may speak freely here, my opinion is that it was no secret that that government was, was eager to pull funding from those types of services and perhaps reallocate them to detox services as an example. That was an ideological move um, with regards to that government. So you have people who use drugs in Lethbridge and surrounding communities all of a sudden, quite frankly, left high and dry. Uh, so they bring in an RV, right? Uh, people meaning well, people doing everything they can to save lives. They bring in an RV. And, and here's where my understanding stops. So here's where I'll stop talking. Uh, but of course, an RV isn't the same as a brick and mortar facility. And, and I would imagine that, that a lot of services were left hanging, uh, so to speak. Can you bring us up to speed? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I mean, going back to this sort of start here, it, it was, um, you know, there was a move to, um, uh, 
emphasize the closure of many of the safe consumption sites in the province. Uh, it happened quite quickly, I think, for uh, Lethbridge, in part because of um, the issues around finance, which uh, I believe um, police investigated. There was nothing sort of um, problematic going on in that regard. Um, uh, nonetheless, it was closed, replaced with an overdose prevention site. Uh, and, and fundamentally, though, the two sites are quite different um, beyond being brick and mortar and um, a mobile um, RV. Uh, the services offered, as you point out, are entirely different. A safe consumption site is required to offer a whole host of services that overdose prevention sites do not have to offer. Um, and, and frankly, an overdose prevention site is supposed to be a temporary public health measure. Uh, it's been around a lot longer than one would imagine for a temporary measure, I would say. Um, uh, but yes, it, the services are quite different. Uh, the, there was a, a much more wraparound service access uh, from the safe consumption site versus what's offered at the overdose prevention site now. Dr. Manick, do you think that, that the average uh, citizen, that the, the, the member of the general public totally understands what these locations are all about, um, who uses them, the vibe in there? <laughs> Uh, what happens after people utilize the services. I mean, I know that there's a lot of hype. I don't want to take away from some people's strong convictions and lived personal experience um, in neighborhoods where some of these uh, locations are, but does the average person have an accurate understanding of what they're all about, do you think? Yeah, so I appreciate that question. And the fact of the matter is the average Canadian does not. And that's partially due to limited education on what these sites are, but I think more importantly, it's due to political and moralistic pushback without a really strong understanding of what the research shows on these sites. For example, many Canadians believe that these sites and these initiatives are new, that they've kind of come out of the ether in recent years. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, Canada's first safe consumption site was opened over 20 years ago. Right. So this isn't a new Canadian initiative. The first modern safe consumption site was opened almost 40 years ago, up in 1986. And that means that we have decades of research that shows whether these sites work, to what extent they work, what public health, crime, social impacts that they have. And yet the benefits of these sites and other harm reduction services are often not funneled to the rest of the population or the rest of the population is sometimes not as open to hearing them precisely because of these often moralistic perceptions that people have of people who use drugs on the streets and largely tied to the war on drugs, right? This idea that we need to push people aggressively. We need to take this law and order approach. We need to push people into absolute abstinence. And thankfully, what the research on the war on drugs has also shown us for decades is that the war on drugs has been a complete failure. And we cannot keep repeating the same approaches to drug use at all. So if we want to actually make changes, the average Canadian needs to realize that we need to start doing things differently. However unfavorable or unappetizing these harm reduction approaches might seem to some, we realize that the scientific basis is there and we need to do things differently 
or else we're just going to keep spinning our wheels like we have for decades until things get worse and worse and worse. Hmm. You know, yesterday, yeah. uh, you know, strange things. I'm sorry, Doc, to step on your toes there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, things will just pop up in your feed, you know, and sometimes it's algorithms and maybe sometimes it's just fate. Uh, but I was corresponding with the three of you yesterday and we're coordinating this interview and up in my social media feed pops an ad uh, the cast of Saved by the Bell. You remember like uh, Zach and what were they like? Skeeter? What was his? No, Sc- Screech. What was his Screech, name? And, yeah. And, uh, you know, anyway, I wish I could remember them all. But uh, the name, everybody knows Mr. Belmore. Was it like anyway? Belding. Everybody knows. Them. Thanks, Johnny. You're helping <laughs> me out here. So it's the cast of Saved by the Bell. Uh, but they're they're deadly serious. Right. And they're in it. And it's a PSA. And it's aimed at their target audience, like tweens and teens. I don't even think back then in the 80s we had the phrase tweens but they were like they were like dirty nasty dangerous and they all had their serious faces on and then they looked into the camera and they said don't do drugs and of course this was at the same time this was the era of like you know just say no and dare and nancy reagan and now we're 40 years later we're literally 30 40 years down the road and and we recognize three experts like yourself will say it's clear that those campaigns were ineffective, that they didn't work, and yet still, this is the policy that that we pursue, uh, Doctor Green. So why aren't we why aren't we scratching our heads? Like, do we have a do we have a block standing in the way? We do we refuse to believe that that the abstinence approach is not one that actually works, despite spending hundreds of millions of dollars on it every year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it, these problems are actually really very complex, and there's no one solution. We can't enforce our way out of these things. Um, you know, drug use is not, it, it's a health issue. It's not a criminal justice issue. Um, where it gets, where, where people become probably a little more confused is, you know, when we're talking about drug trafficking, the drug trade, you know, th- those move into the criminal justice realm. But in terms of an individual's drug use, you know, it's clear this is not a criminal justice issue. The criminal justice system is not the place to address this issue. It's just simply ineffective. And really what we need to be thinking about is where we best want to use our resources. I mean, and that was the point, you know, expanding off of what um, Dr. Urbanic was saying, you know, this war on drugs has cost, you know, so much in ta- in tax dollars over the years and you know how much of that money could have been better spent within you know a number of different areas health education uh, there there are a number of ways in which we can use our uh, tax dollars uh, more efficiently and and you know offering something like a safe consumption site is frankly if you want to just talk numbers the most cost effective response to this problem. You know, if we want to open up um, space for paramedics to respond, well, having a safe consumption site can do that. It can it can provide, you know, some some movement in terms of uh, the ability to for emergency services to respond. You know, it's it's interesting, right? Like we we can talk about uh, we can approach this from compassionate grounds. We can approach this from logical grounds and talk about the connections that that people who utilize these services, people who use drugs, would make the relationships that they would start to build with public health officials, the doors that would potentially open to utilize other health services like mental health counseling, like housing, like all sorts of things. There's the compassion side. There's the logic side, and 
And then there is the bottom line side, where to a lot of people you say, listen, look at this. I mean, just even the province of Alberta, the, the health minister just last week announcing, okay, we're going to find the funding for 20 more ambulances to try to deal with some of these challenges. Well, you talk to any EMT, you talk to any firefighter, you want to ask them why the trucks are tied up. You want to ask them why they're not available. In many circumstances, it's because they're responding to multiple drug poisonings every single shift if they're not tied up in triage, if they're not tied up in the ER standing by a stretcher. Yeah, that's right. I mean, researchers in Alberta, uh, public health researchers, they've estimated that um, an over responding to an overdose at a safe consumption site in the province saves the province sixteen hundred dollars per response. Wow. And so not only does it save the sixteen hundred dollars, it has also freed up that ambulance to respond to a critical health need for someone. So, you know, the the benefits there are, I mean, they're huge. And as we speak, as we do this interview, we're six days away from British Columbia launching what I guess you might describe as a, as a pilot project. Health Canada has granted an exemption uh, to the province for about three years, an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. And so until January 31st of 2026, adults in B.C. starting next Tuesday will not be subject to criminal charges for the personal possession of small amounts of certain illegal drugs. People might refer to them as the the hard drugs. Uh, Dr. Mayor, where do you think we might be? I mean, I'm asking you to look deep into the back of your crystal ball. But if we talk about the war on drugs and dare and just say no and the Saved by the Bell crew and everybody else in the early 1990s or the late 1980s, if we fast forward 30 years from now, if we start to look to 2055, let's say, what do you think drug policy will look like? How do you think the general population will approach it? Uh, how do you think that health officials will approach it? How do you think that lawmakers will approach it across the country? No, I wish I had a crystal ball and I wish I could see a public health approach to drug use and a move away from a punitive approach to drug use. I think on, on, you know, I think we're seeing some progress and I think that's really good. And, you know, we've talked about the war on drugs. We've talked about more punitive approaches, but in the past, and you just mentioned the BC example, we've seen a move to more progressive and harm reduction initiatives. And there's certainly been more talk among criminal justice institutions, public health institutions, politicians, a whole range of stakeholders about the need to think about an alternative way to deal with this issue. And I think that's really positive. So while I can say where we'll be, um, I hope we're going to take a different path. And I hope discussions around decriminalization, around initiating treatment, around public health and welfare-based response to drug use is going to continue. And I think there's hope that it will. Uh, Dr. Urbanic, in closing, uh, I want to remind our audience members that we do have the link uh, to this study on Athabasca University's website uh, available. People can click on that. It's also in the show notes. Read through it. It's presented very well. It's very enlightening. I learned a lot by reading through it. What's one thing, based on the results of this study, that you hope members of the general public, that, that audience members of this show, take away from this conversation? That irrespective of what your political position on these matters is, irrespective of what your moralistic position on these matters is, irrespective of what your own family position is, right? Let's be honest. Many of us are dealing with addictions ourselves or have family members who deal with this. 
We need to realize that the previous approach was not working and we need to come together and not emphasize these divisions because that's the only way change will happen. We need to drop the differences, come together and do something about this problem because thousands of us are dying and it needs to stop. That's Dr. Marta Marika, Urbanic University of Alberta. We've also heard, uh, I'm grateful for uh, Dr. Carolyn Green joining us from Athabasca University and Dr. Katerina Mayer joining us from the University of Winnipeg. To the three of you, thank you for your advocacy. Uh, thank you for sharing your expertise with us in terms that, that lay people like us can understand. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Real talkers, if you know that this is a conversation that someone in your sphere someone in your circle needs to hear we appreciate you sharing it with them uh, whether that's someone that approaches this subject from a, a political standpoint right there's a lot of ideology at play here what is what is my political party uh, what is my team what does my camp say about this maybe you're someone who tragically has lost someone to drug poisoning that'll change your mind in a hurry if your mind wasn't changing already if you're someone that would like to see elected officials in your neck of the woods take the opioid crisis more seriously, this is a conversation that we hope that you'll share. Of course, you can like it. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel and subscribe as well anywhere you get your podcast. We really appreciate it, and that helps us get the message out to more people. We're going to head across the pond in just a moment. Valentine Lowe is, uh, I would say, arguably the world's most prominent royal correspondent from the Times. He's been covering the royal family uh, for 15 years or so, and he's going to join us live in just a moment. These conversations are presented by Real Talk sponsors like Park Power. I had Real Talker Michael reach out yesterday. He was hanging out with some pals. He said, remind me of the promo code. He says, he says they're signing up to Park Power right now. I love it. Johnny, music to our ears when Real Talkers are hanging out with their friends and signing up for our sponsors. You know why it's especially cool. It's because Michael's friends are now going to be paying less for internet, electricity, and natural gas. How can we guarantee that? Well, it's easy. Go to parkpower.ca and see for yourself. When you compare rates between the big guys and this friendly local utilities provider, you're going to find that the options are, quite frankly, better and you're going to pay less. And the best part about this new promo code from Park Power is it encourages you to bundle their services. So you're going to save $50, 50 bucks a red bill off your first bill on every service you bundle. You go with them just for natural gas, 50 bucks off your first month. Natural gas and electricity, that's 100 bucks off. And Johnny, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you were to go internet, electricity, and natural gas using the promo code REALTALK23 at parkpower.ca, how much would you save off your first bill? I don't know. Well, John, it would be fifty. <laughs> carry the carry the one. Carry the. It would, it would be a hundred and fifty dollars off your first bill from our friends at parkpower.ca. Speaking of saving money, the fridge is starting to look a little bit. You get you, you're like running shy on eggs, maybe some milk, maybe some deli meat. Maybe you got to you pick up a new loaf of sourdough bread. Maybe the monthly family grocery shop is coming up. The first of the month is coming up a week from today. And at Friesen Brothers, you know what that means. It's 15% off grocery purchases of $75 or more. Check out their easy family solutions on their website before you shop. This is how you can set yourself up for success. Their family essentials flyer. You can view it online, F-R-E-S-O-N.com. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. We love supporting family-owned businesses that support Real Talk, and that includes the 
Monsma family that owns and operates Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. I always tell you, the best endorsement I can ever give is to let you know what we feed our family members. All right, and that includes Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. You've heard about our boxer Moses at an advanced stage. You've heard about our lab Monroe. She's in the prime of her life. They require different nutrition plans. And so we feed them different offerings from Grand Dog Essentials. And that's because we've worked with their team to best understand what's best for our dogs. You can check out their blog link at granddog.ca and learn a little bit more. A new entry there about high-quality protein for both dogs and cats. That's right. Dog and cat lovers can both take advantage of the expertise and the family-owned magic that comes with doing business at granddog.ca. Don't forget, when you place your order for delivery to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta, the promo code REALTALK knocks 10% off your first-time order. And you can, of course, subscribe to their email list as well for exclusive discounts at granddog.ca. Well, if you're not talking about politics or war... It's easily the biggest story in the world, and that is the story of the royal family. But but it's a different story than it has been in past. It's a different story because one of the more prominent members of the family picked up and left. You know that. Harry and Meghan first sat down with an interview with Oprah, released a Netflix special, and of course, Harry's got his brand new book out. It's selling millions of copies, but what toll is it taking on the couple's popularity in Britain? And what toll is it taking on the family itself, including the relationship with Harry and his brother William and Harry and his dad, the king? Valentine Lowe has covered the royal family and other stories for the time since 2008. He traveled to Russia with the queen. He was in the Galapagos Islands with the then Prince of Wales and Bhutan with the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. He's also the author of the allotment classic, One Man and His Stig. It's wonderful to welcome Valentine Lowe to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us, my friend, and, and welcome to the show. It's nice to see your face. Where do we find you? you in London right now? Uh, I'm in New York right now. Oh, you're in New York right now. Wonderful. What brings you there? Um, to talk about my book. <laughs> Good stuff. And I've got to say, thank you so much for giving a name check to one man and his dick. It's an allotment classic. And yeah. uh, I'm glad it's not been forgotten. No, not at all. Not at all. Well, I, we get a real quick kick of having you here on the show. And I know that, I mean, you know, we were, we were looking at recent interviews that you've been doing. And, and within the last 24 hours, you were chatting with your pal Pierce Morgan. And you've been doing the big morning shows in the U.S. And here you are in one of Canada's new digital talk shows, which we certainly appreciate. The eyes of the world have been on this family for for obviously hundreds of years but but right now there's a new kind of interest isn't there because aside from maybe prince andrew uh, aside from the princess diana and dodi fayed stuff there, there hasn't really been a story like this of a rift or of dysfunction in the family uh quite like what we're seeing right now what do you make of it no it's absolutely massive uh this story um and you know, it's, this is the first time, really, since the abdication that uh, a member of the royal family has, you know, up sticks and left, um, which is pretty seismic stuff. Uh, and but the rift in the royal family is incredible. No, you know, Princess Diana said some pretty disobliging things in the past. Even Charles said some disobliging things about his own upbringing in in in, in his biography. But no one has ever been. There's not such a good salvo 
uh, of invective against the royal family as, as as Harry and Meghan have done in in their Netflix series and now the book. I mean, it's it's really is unprecedented. We use the word unpre- unprecedented too much, but this is really is unprecedented. So you've you've been covering this family for quite some time. Uh, you know a great deal about the, not just the goings on, but the power players both in 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 front of the general public and behind the scenes. When you endeavor, when you sit down to write your new book, Courtiers, Intrigue, Ambition, and the Power Players Behind the House of Windsor, where does a person like you start with the knowledge that you're already working with? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's all about relationships, getting people to talk. And these a lot of these people are people that I've known for some years and build up a relationship of trust for them. And um, they feel you know they can share their stuff with, them, with me. Uh, I also spoke to some people had not spoken to before, and they spoke to me because they felt this was going to be you know, a serious look uh, at an institution from, from a new perspective, and they thought it was worthwhile uh, getting their views across. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, people who work for the royal family are generally speaking pretty loyal. Uh, they don't betray confidences easily. But I think people, some people are so sick and tired of Harry and Meghan Yes, putting out their story for so long, putting out what they've called their truth, that these people who've worked for them and, in their view, had suffered under them, uh, thought it was time that their truth could come out too. Do you think, where do you think, like, when you, when you take a look at the general public in the UK, when you take a look at the general public in Britain, and if you were to play a playground game of whose side is whom on, and you started to divide, to divide up the general public... As Prince Harry continues to divulge his truth, as he talks about the, the racism at play, as he talks about the, the coordinated efforts uh, against his bride, Meghan Markle, as, as, as these stories continue to land, what do you see happening on the ground? What do you see with regards to the millions of people that pay attention to this family every single day? Harry and Meghan um, were not terribly popular in Britain already before Netflix, before Spare, uh, they're now even less popular. Their, their, their popularity has taken a, a slump. But interestingly, you know, William and Kate's, William, William's popularity has also taken a little bit of a knock, but I think that will recover. Um, I think in terms of the reputation of the royal family overall, you know, it has taken a little bit of a dent, uh, but it will recover because a lot of this stuff, I mean, basically there are two things in this book there's the there's the family stuff and there's the institutional stuff the family stuff in the end that's family it's it's brothers squabbling it's it's fathers and sons squabbling it's rows about money um it's you know someone coming in with a new bride and uh oh dear turns out the family doesn't like the new bride that much um yeah that's family stuff it blows over you know we move on the institutional stuff where Harry accuses the, the royal household of, of leaking against him, of briefing, of planting negative stories about Harry and Meghan. He doesn't come up with any evidence for that. There are no particulars. Um, and I think people see that his case is, is, is weakened by that. You know, if he actually said, oh, well, this story came out, and, you know, I reckon that was planted to do me damage by this household, we could take it a lot more seriously. But he doesn't do that. Um, so, you know, I don't think, you know, Harry, Harry's popularity uh, in the UK is pretty low and 
doesn't sound doesn't show much sign of recovering. Are you cynical about some of the claims that he's making? Very much so. Yeah, um, he gets he gets so much wrong in the book. I mean, one of the things he gets wrong, he describes a particular incident um, with the, when Meghan had a day out with the Queen, uh, and basically he says that um, betray- the, the press portrayal of this day out, which went pretty well, uh, was was very negative, all because of some tiny, tiny incident about who got got into the car first or got back into the car first. Uh, it was a nothing. And he, Harry says that the press portrayed this as an unmitigated disaster. And then you look at the newspapers. I actually went to the effort of doing this. I looked at all the newspaper coverage the next day, including the papers that Harry and Meghan just hate, the, the British tabloids, the Sun, the Daily Mail. And all the coverage was unremittingly positive. It was glowing coverage. Look, um, there's a picture of them smiling um, at this event. Um, and uh, it just it just shows that Harry, he's, he's in such a, a spin about the media. He so hates the media that he, he, all, all he can see is the negative. And if there's positive stuff, he either doesn't see it or he forgets it or he just he's just blind to it. Um, so I don't think everything, you know, Harry's got a lot of interesting say, things to say in that book, but you shouldn't take everything he says at face value. When you say you, you talk about the, the the reputation of the royal family, and and, and part of me, Valentine, because you're in it, and 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 I'm you know thousands of kilometers away here, but I do think that Canadians have a different relationship with Britain, obviously, than Americans do, and there are sure. there are conversations that we'll have even here in Canada about the monarchy and about the you know the the, the Queen and w- w- who will now be the king on our currency and the like, and and you'll find people that obviously feel very differently about that relationship in Britain. When you say the reputation's damaged, but it will recover you say that with such a great degree of confidence do you see the popularity waning in a way that potentially british people could lose their sense of connection to the royal family or or am i talking absolute gibberish right now i think the point is we've been here before we've 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 seen back in the 1990s the reputation of the royal family is pretty low then the diana years um Andrew Morton's book, the the the, the Panorama interview, and then and then when Diana died, I mean, the royal family did not have a good, great reputation then, but they they knuckled down, they recovered, uh, and I, I feel they'll recover again. You know, in the long term, who knows what will happen? Um, but it's interesting, you know, Charles succeeding the throne on the death of his death of his mother. You know, Charles is a controversial uh, figure. He he he's very divisive. Not not everyone loves him. Uh, but I always said long before um, the Queen died that I thought he'd do better than his critics would allow. And I think I've been proved right. I think he, I think he's got off to quite a good start. Uh, you know, whether that will continue, it'll be very interesting to see what the coronation is like. But so far, it's gone pretty well for Charles. Um, I think he, you know, I think he means well. He's got a good heart, and I think people recognise that in him. Do you think that that Harry and Meghan will will be invited to or will attend the coronation on May sixth? I think uh, Harry will certainly be invited to the coronation. Uh, I think the king uh, won't want to be seen as petty and vindictive. Um, uh, he's got to keep the moral high ground there. Um, whether whether they go or not is a different matter. I can't really imagine her coming to the coronation. Uh, I think. It would be too inflammatory that all the attention would be on her. 
but he might come. Um, and if you remember, look, look back to the Queen's Platinum Jubilee last summer. Uh, they came and they they kept a pretty low profile, didn't they? They they, they behaved themselves. They kept out of the way. We didn't really see much of them, and it kind of passed off without much incident. Uh, and you know, it's possible to do that, but I don't think the family rift will be in any meaningfully in, in any meaningful way um, healed by then. I mean, the, the things that um, Harry said about his brother. I mean, you don't get over that so easily. Uh, and in order to in order to heal the rift, you've you've got to have some private conversations, quite delicate conversations, painful conversations. And given Harry's propensity for putting all conversations like that out of the public domain in books and television programs, it's hard to see how the royal family would trust him in order to have those conversations. So it's difficult to see how you even get the peace talks going. I mean, let alone repairing the the incredible damage that's been done to the family by 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 Harry and his book. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you in closing is is about the brotherly relationship. And I think that the world, you know, there's always a fascination when when the, the, the royal family, you know, uh, you know, has, you know, there's introduces new offspring and and everyone in the world knows that child's name the moment that they're born and essentially watches them grow up. But with William and Harry, it was a little bit different, of course. I think that the the general public, the global audience felt even more of a connection to them because of the, the tragic passing of their mom and because of the, the entire circumstance and. I mean, my jaw dropped, and I'm I'm not even like to be honest with you. I'm a bit of a tepid watcher of all of this, but but hearing some of these allegations and and Harry like airing it all out and talking about physical altercations that the brothers have had and and all this sort of thing. I mean, it's really like airing that out for public consumption could have long term consequences, long term implications. So you've got Harry and Meghan. They move to the United States. They're essentially disassociating themselves with the royal family what ultimately that looks like remains to be determined if you had to speculate what would that brotherly relationship look like 10 years from now it's it's really going to struggle to recover that relationship uh but what because harry said such such a lot about his brother uh it's been so painful but not not just not just that fight, the way he portrays he portrays his brother as sort of insecure and domineering at the same time. Uh, it's it's very damaging that. Um, but one of the interesting things about the book, I, I I felt was that it seems that the relationship between those two brothers wasn't even as good as we thought it was when we thought it was okay. So lo- long before we we in the outside world thought there was a rift. Uh, I think there was a lot of difficulty between Harry and William. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's it's going to struggle to recover that relationship. And it's so sad because they, you know, they loved each other and they were very close at one time. Uh, and they were united in adversity. You know, they both lost their mother. They only had each other to turn to. Um, and it's it's so sad, but, you know, it's, it's going to struggle. Valentine Lowe, Royal Correspondent for The Times. You can check out his new book. You can get it now. Courtiers, Intrigue, Ambition, and the Power Players Behind the House of Windsor. Joining us live from New York City. Thanks for this. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) The dirty laundry effect. The dirty laundry effect. I was curious. I mean, I didn't know know what angle he was going to take on that. 
Yeah. And um, he he literally, he did an interview with Piers Morgan like 15 hours ago mm-hmm. uh, before he spoke to us. And, and there's a great clip from that interview where Piers says, uh, if I was the king, I wouldn't invite him to my coronation. And Valentine quips back, well, yeah, that's why you're not the king, Pierce. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. But But obviously he's going to defend his profession. And I also recognize that, you know, as I'm watching this documentary last night, we blew through the whole thing, me and my partner, that that it is we're, we're getting one person or one couple's perspective. And I do also realize that not everyone in the press in the U.K., is out for blood, is out for money, is evil. Uh, there are some of them. I, we, I just went and Googled last night, like Meghan Markle, and just looked at stories from like, you know, a year ago and when all this stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. And and there are. There are positive stories that were in there. There's a lot of negative too, and there's a lot of stories with just dog whistle, strong language that mm-hmm. you, you don't see here in Canada, even though like people knock the CBC and, and all these other, you know, for trying to incite people to to fight and and uh get in arguments but in the uk it's so different the headlines are so you read them and you're like you can see you can read right between the lines on what they're on what they're saying and you can also there's there's these this strong like saying megan has exotic dna and all these slight you know essence of racism Mm. is just veiled in there it's so Mm. it's very strange it's a very strange world the royal family Mm. and i think that's why some people like you just said kind of tune it out right yeah they're not into it (laughs) yeah i mean there's there's there are people that are not into it at all i mean there are people that are probably uh, checking out real talk and then the minute that interview starts they're like bah they're gonna fast forward to my jasper (laughs) memories um, and then there are people that will come and check out this episode maybe for the first time because they will consume everything they can find about the royal family. And it's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And you always hear people's stories, regardless of where they live, like anywhere in the, in the Commonwealth nations, as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I was seven, uh, my parents took me to when the queen visited or or my mom saw the queen when she was seven. Yeah. It still has the picture. Of, and these are huge deals for people. Um, I just wanted to drop into the live chat and see where the audience is at. Rose uh, says that she just bought the book Spare. That's Harry's new book. The the the, the namesake or the, the the inspiration behind the title of the book. They say that every royal family. They said that with the offspring, you need an heir and a spare. And mm-hmm. so William's the heir and Harry's the spare. And so Rose just bought the book. Says I'm sympathetic to Harry's thoughts and feelings. Says I've always liked him. Justin says I've never really understood the rabid fascination with the royal family. He says to the point that there are careers as, for example, a royal correspondent. I mean, sure, right? I mean, it's the same. It's the same. It's not the same, but it's kind of the same as someone that would cover like federal politics in in Canada. You've got your your political journalists in Britain, and then you've got your royal correspondents, and, and people care about that. I was I was curious mm-hmm. to see how Valentine would answer that question. Like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, yeah, are people still going to care? And he just goes, he goes, we've been here before. Well, you have to you have to remember, like, Britain was the last great empire that like ruled the world, right? Yeah. So, like, of course, people are going to be interested. But yeah, the Sons and Megan, they're kind of living in this like shadow of Diana. And I think that's why people are so enamored by them as well. Because everyone loved Diana because she was the first to speak out. And now Megan is kind of the second woman to do it, right? Yeah. I love this from Tracy. says, in this day and age, it's so important to call out places and spaces that are not good for our mental health. She says, I give Harry props. It was obviously not an easy choice. I mean, and what an understatement, right, Tracy? Like, you think mm-hmm. of what, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. You talk to somebody that leaves a bad relationship, that leaves a bad workplace, that leaves a bad situation, whatever that is in their orbit. Uh, and the, and you'll say, gosh, that must have been tough to leave. And, and they'll say, well, well, no, because it was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right? But but you think of leaving the royal family. Yeah. I mean, you think of the resources at your disposal. You think of what the, But also a lot of pressure. Oh, we don't understand. I mean, where was the comment? There was a comment here somewhere that someone said, and I apologize if I can't find it and recognize you, but someone said, like, there's something horrible about parading out young boys who, you know, hours or days after their mother's tragic death, you know, the, the, they're there for the world mm-hmm. to, to essentially consume, to see, to watch. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially with Megan, there's one point in like the second last episode where just after she has the baby and one of these reporters gets like like an in-depth personal interview with her on the grounds. And he the first question he asks is he's like, how are you doing? Like people think you're not doing that great. How are you feeling? And she pauses and her face is just like Mm. you can tell she's about to cry. And she just thanks him. She's like, you're the first person like outside of the family who's just asked me how I'm doing. And she straight up says, she's like, not well. This is a very difficult thing to do. Plain power in our live chat says, Harry has PTSD. The media hounded his mother. The media caused her death. For sure. I get the hate. Like, 100%. 100%. Anna says, without much interest in the royal family. So Anna plants her flag. uh, Says, I can appreciate the desire of any person to rile against secrets. To, to want the right to raise their voices against wrong and harm. Truth must trump power. Hmm. And then, of course, a lot of people pointing out as well. And, and Emma, by the way, great point, Emma, too. Yeah, there was a moment in that interview there where, where you put up a picture of Meghan Markle and the Queen and Valentine goes, yeah, see, she's smiling. Mm-hmm. And Emma says, well, th- there's lots of pictures of Meghan smiling while she was suffering. There's lots of pictures of a lot of people smiling while they're suffering. Nervous uh, anxiousness. Is, I mean, or, <laughs> yeah. or just putting on a brave face for the camera, right? So that's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, other comments here. Harry idolized his mother, was traumatized by her death. The foundation for his emotions comes from there. Uh, Justin says, I wish that Harry would have put himself under the microscope uh, in spare. He only reflects on the effects of war, for example, for two paragraphs out of like 100 pages on the topic. Mm-hmm. And then talks more about his frozen bits. Uh, yeah, I heard that. <laughs> I heard that audio. It's literally because he he narrates his own audiobook. Harry yeah, does. My, my partner. And he, someone told. Uh, anyway, we don't need to get into it. But so, he had like some issue with his junk, and someone told him to put some weird cream yeah. on it, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> and he like goes into it and he's talking about his anyway. My my partner was like, you're going to see a charge because I, I went online and I got the audio version of the book. I'm like, why didn't you just get the book? She's like, have you heard it? It's <laughs> Harry reading the book to you. Yeah. This is an interesting point from Tony who says, you want to talk about royal correspondence and what dynamic the comparison? She says it's the same here in North America with sports reporters. 100%. And the hot takes. I mean, Tony, I actually really like that comparison. I really like that comparison. I mean, there's there's people, grown men and women, whose job it is. And I'm not denigrating. I think it's actually awesome. Mm-hmm. Like we talked to Derek Van Deest live from Qatar a few weeks ago. He's, he's out there. His job is to go over and cover the World Cup. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. If you can get that job, that's amazing. There are, there are grown men and women who get to fly around with professional athletes on private jets. Mm-hmm. And just write about the games. But at the same How time, how cool is that? To get that job, all you got to do is watch a lot of sports. <laughs> no, and that's what Royal Correspondents do. All you right? got to do. They just got to. <laughs> all you got to do. We're well, going to get angry phone calls today. <laughs> it's so easy. I have, be- I have, I have, a, I have a bridge to burn with sports reporters too. But oh, do you? <laughs> well, no. I just there's so many, right? And I just yeah, they're all experts. So yeah, yeah. Hey, did you see? Yeah, there is that new. Not to go off on a tangent, but there is that new. Uh, there's 
there's a new Sportsnet ad out, and it's got the, it's got two of their anchors, Martin Geyer, and I can't remember the fellow's name, and they're and and they're clapping back at people that are critical of sports analysts. Mm-hmm. What you just said, and and it and it's kind of funny because it's it's like it's uh, the the uh, goal of the marketing campaign is to establish the credibility of their on-air personalities, people that have played the sports before. You know, like we've got Kia Nurse and Craig Simpson. And I I like Cassie it. Campbell. I like it when they're people. former athletes. That then I listen to them because I'm like these people have played but when it's someone who's never played a professional sport someone who like clearly isn't an athlete sitting on a couch eating potato chips being like this guy is horrible i'm like come on you've never been in that situation you don't know the pressure you don't know what it takes i can't wait to check our email inbox later today (laughs) i'm sending them all but i do i do appreciate that a lot of them are very skilled writers and you know uh, Evans here on the live chat says I would compare Royal Correspondence more to paparazzi. Uh, I know the Royal Correspondence would push back on that, but I'll take your point. He says, and maybe like TMZ, um, as opposed to sports commentators. Darren says, growing up in the Royal family, what a, what a difficult environment to grow up in the pressure, the scrutiny. He says, imagine coming into it after a relatively normal upbringing. No wonder those who marry into it really suffer. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that, and and I know, Darren, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I don't mean to, but Meghan Markle didn't necessarily have a a normal upbringing. She grew Mm. up as essentially almost Hollywood royalty. and and Kind of. I mean, she grew up, that's in the documentary. She grew up in like, you know. But Diana was. Not a a great part of L.A. and until she got famous, she wasn't really, you know. But Diana was was, was like a. Do you say what am I like? A, was she a commoner? Like she was. She was. Yeah. She was. I, I don't think that's an insult. Is that an insult? We're commoners, right? Everyone's commoners. Yeah, but you can't compare. But, but she was a kindergarten teacher. Like, Make- so imagine, imagine marrying into a family like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the reports go, to a, to a husband that like on the wedding day wasn't even too keen, you know. And then having the world adore, I mean, Princess Di, like you think of what, what did she, like when I think of Princess Di, what are the things that people cared most about? Was it that she made herself available for photo ops on the steps outside the hospital when the boys were born? Maybe, but what it probably was, was hugging and holding babies with AIDS. Yeah. It was probably walking through areas where landmines were suspected to be to bring awareness to war-torn areas of the planet and and areas that demanded global attention and and, and famine and all of these things, mm-hmm. right? Like I think that's why the cuz Diana was wired a little bit differently. She and, was the and, first one to do that stuff. Like yeah. go to the places the others didn't want. And to. reportedly it rubbed the royal family the wrong way and they didn't love it. But that's what the general public loves. Mm-hmm. That's what Meghan and Harry did. Like you're seeing in this documentary, they're going to South Africa. They're going to all these poor places. That That's where they chose to go rather than do these, you know, these walkabouts they do where they just, they line up like a gauntlet and it's just adoring fans. And they're showing Meghan and Harry walking through them. And at one point, somebody whispers to Meghan, this was when the headlines were going bad. It's horrible what you're doing to the family. Okay. And she says that was the moment she realized, like, they all believe this tabloid stuff. I need to correct because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about with Princess Diana, but this is why we have a live chat because you guys hold my feet to the fire and you're on it. Um, so Diana was actually, I, was, I don't know what I'm talking about at all. She was born into British nobility. I had no idea. I thought she was like a, I thought she was like a minimum wage earning kindergarten teacher. Um, she was working as a nursery teacher's assistant when she became engaged to the Prince of Wales, but she did grow up close to the royal family on their Sandringham estate. Uh, and yada, yada, yada. Okay, so it, okay, pardon me. So it sounds like, yeah, she was born 
the fourth of five children to John Spencer, Viscount Althorpe. Uh, the Spencer family had been closely allied with the British royal family for several generations. Um, and uh, her grandmothers had served as ladies-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Okay, interesting. There you go. I learned something today. Glad we have a live chat. I'm glad we do have a live chat. Everyone's like, listen, to this guy thinks Diana was a commoner. Um, can you believe she was 36 when she died? Mm-hmm. I always think that's wild Mm -hmm. when you look at the young people that have passed away, like Princess Di, I think of Bob Marley. I think of like young people that are like in their late 20s, early 30s, like just and and what they had accomplished already by then, like 36. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. I'm not saying anything profound here. Don't worry, folks. You can send us an email anytime. Where's your head at on what you're hearing here on the show? Talk at RyanJesperson.com. If you want to take this as a jumping off point, if we want to talk about pressure that we place on the, the children of celebrities, if you want to talk about Canada's relationship to the crown, to the monarchy, the legacy of Princess Diana, your thoughts on systemic racism in institutions, whatever this prompts you to think about, what we love seeing here on the show is one conversation that begets another, that begets another, that gets us thinking and talking and coming together in community to better understand the world around us. This show today is presented by our friends at Athabasca University. That's Canada's open university with world-class accredited online programs and courses that offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. I loved a while ago, Harmon Candola, a good friend of the show, member of our editorial board. Was, I didn't know that his wife, that his life partner had studied, completed her master's degree at Athabasca. And what he said, I think, was the story that so many thousands of people would reiterate that when the family came calling, when other things were pulling on her time and she needed to step away from her studies, it was not an issue. She didn't need to go meet with the registrar. She didn't have to write all of her professors. She didn't have to figure it out and add to her stress or add to the demands on her time because she was a student at Athabasca University. You can place your studies on hold if you need. You can fast forward them if you need. You can complete your personal and career betterment at your own pace. And that journey can start today. Learn how AU works at AthabascaU.ca. We're nearing the end of January, which means we are nearing the end of the buy one, get one free special at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park. This is us sounding the alarm. You're going to get there on February 1st, and the deal's going to be done, and you're going to go, Dagnabbit, why did I not get there sooner? DQ sandwiches, Dilly bars, the six packs are two for one right now. Buy one, get one free at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And don't forget to say hi to the Cardinal family, the Lieber family. They own these Dairy Queens. They're going to be out with us on Saturday, February 4th at the Real Talk Pond Hockey Classic. If you want to learn more about that, check out the events page at ryanjesperson.com. At Kubi Renewable Energy, they want to remind you that they're not just doing residential solar installations. I mean, yes, it is true that they're doing more residential solar installations than anybody else in Western Canada, but they also do commercial, industrial, 
agricultural. You can check out their products and services, including off-grid solar and electric vehicle chargers. Obviously a huge demand for those over the next few years at kubienergy.ca. That's where you can get your free quote today. People will say, well, there's a lot of landscaping companies out there and you're about to make a big investment in your outdoor space. Maybe hope to break ground on a project to reinvent that space this spring or this summer. So why choose Eden Landscaping? Well, for starters, Mike and his team guarantee that there's no vision you have that they cannot execute. They are construction masters. They are problem solvers. They are a custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. You can browse their services online today at landscapeedmonton.ca. Whether it's edible garden boxes, excavation, hardscapes, retaining walls, water features, outdoor kitchens, you name it, they do it at Eden Landscaping. You can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And a big shout out to our friends at Local Environmental Services. We're coming up to Friday, less than 48 hours from now if you're watching live. And depending on when you hear the podcast or check this out on YouTube, if you have something you need to get off your chest, quite frankly, friends, if you're pissed off, why not send us an email? It's cathartic, the exercise, getting it off your chest to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And then on Friday, presented by Local Environmental Services, we'll bring you Trash Talk. Now, why bring your business to Local Environmental Services if you work in retail, if you're working in an industrial? Hey, maybe you're a decision maker at a town or a city near Edmonton or Whitecourt or Regina, Saskatchewan. Well, Local Environmental Services, number one, a real person's going to answer the phone when you call them. And number two, nobody does more in their industry to give back to local causes. They prove it on their website. You can learn more about who is local at localenvironmental.ca. We love this email. There's been a lot of talk about gas stoves over the past while. Now, politicians are, are digging in their talons on this. It, it seems to be a, a conservative trend. We're seeing it in the United States, and we're seeing it in Canada. Prominent conservative politicians are all posing by their gas ranges uh, in some sort of defiance against we're not really sure who. Uh, now, the other side, the, le- the left-leaning politicians, I haven't seen a campaign to cancel gas stoves, but everybody's talking about it because of research that shows that regular use of a gas range in a home, in particular a home lacking appropriate ventilation, could lead to increased risk of asthma in children. We're on this story. We're looking for the perfect guest. We always want to bring you the foremost experts in the field, but we love this email from Lisa yesterday. And Lisa's subject line read, gas stove. And I went, I wonder where this is going. (laughs) And she wrote in and she says, yes, we ripped out our gas stove this summer. And then she gives an LOL. She says, after getting a new home and being so excited to try gas, she says, I couldn't believe how inefficient it was. She says, it felt like it took 20 minutes to just boil a pot of water. And she says, I missed my electric range at the old house. And then my partner pointed out an article about asthma in kids. She says, we have small kids. We do anything for them. And she says, and I took this as an opportunity to upgrade. And so we went for the induction range as it has actually come down in price quite a bit 
over the last few years. Lisa says, you need to tell Real Talkers the difference is mind-blowing. She says we can fully boil a large pasta pot of water in under seven minutes. Instant control. Well worth it. It saves me time daily. And she says, and plus, I couldn't stand listening to that hood fan every time that our gas range was running. That from Lisa, who sent us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I would imagine we're going to start seeing some pretty serious marketing efforts from the natural gas lobby over the next while, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the finest restaurants, if you look at the sexiest kitchens, gas ranges have been an institution Mm -hmm. for a lot of years. I'll be Mm -hmm. curious to see how many people are actually going to make the move and swap them out. Yeah, I'm thinking of going to like, you know, just a couple sticks. Yeah, kind of rub rub them them together together in the backyard. And it's how they used to do it back in the day. It's green. Yeah, so, yeah, it is very green. I guess depending on where you're getting your sticks and how you're harvesting them, and make sure yeah. you're not, you know, you know. Can you think of a time where a, a news story, uh, something that was out about maybe the health impact of something, changed your behavior, prompted you to get rid of something, or prompted you to invest in something, or prompted you, like Lisa, to swap something out? Mm, I remember when the the carcinogens in hot dogs things came out, and oh. I was like, I'm never eating a hot again after that are you talking about recently with the alcohol the 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 requirements or the limits, well, i didn't have anything i didn't have anything in particular in mind but that's a great example that's another one where i was like oh because people people got so angry at it the government shouldn't tell me not to drink but like we're constantly learning new information new research and i was reading some of it and i'm like wow this isn't this isn't great, right? Mm. We should we should limit our consumption a little more, especially you and me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've had a I've had a I won't, I'm not going to say I'm not going to lie Epiphany? to you. I'm not going to lie to real talkers, but I I I've it's been messing with my head uh, because for quite some time I believed, and this is not an advertisement, although you can buy it at Friesen Brothers. I believed that Coke Zero was some sort of miracle potion no that was, sugar that was gifted to, there's no sugar you can get it with no caffeine there's like no it it, it just appeared to be a sports drink it appeared to, <laughs> and even sports drinks are really bad for you but it appeared to be, or can be but it, it appeared to be like a magic solution it was like all the taste of coke with none of the sugar mm-hmm. because i could never get over like there's nothing like a I don't know about you, but there's nothing like Coke on ice. Like, there's nothing like a glass of Coke. I really, I can crush it. I used to love it, yeah. I love it. I love the taste of it. But then you read it, and on a can, it's like 40 grams of sugar. Mm -hmm. And I remember having, on a TV show I used to host, a nutritionist came in and put approximately 40 grams of sugar piled up on a piece of paper on the countertop and was like, that is the amount of sugar in a can of Coke, and it rocked my world. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, well, Coke Zero is a great alternative, and it's amazing, and I would crush these Coke Zeros until we had a conversation in our household. And Carrie says to me, she's like, you know, like you have to know. She said, you have to know that that's too good to be true. Like, you have to know <laughs> that it's not possible that Coke is going to be as good for you as water. And, uh, and, and I, I was forced to reconcile this and did a little bit of digging and did a little bit of reading. And let me just say, uh, whether it's fat-free food that you're going for, whether it's sugar-free drinks that you're going for, there are always trade-offs yeah. and always things you have to consider. I'm just laughing because you thought, Coke Zero was the same as water. Well, I didn't necessarily. Like you're, you're waking up in the morning dehydrated. You're like, Coke Zero. <laughs> like, I didn't actually think it was as good as water. But let me just say that I was drinking enough of it that I was treating it like it was water. You know what I mean? 
Kimberly's wondering, what about natural gas fireplaces? I mean, that's another great question. Now, I guess gas fireplaces, there are different setups too, right? Like there are the folks that'll, that'll have the natural gas like we used to have in our old home. And I, boy, do I love these. They're, they're not even code anymore. You can't build houses anymore with open fireplaces, as I understand it. Uh, but those always had the natural gas starters underneath them, right? And there were the families that would sort of leave those starters burning. And, and maybe that's one thing. Now, I think most of the natural gas fireplaces, as far as I understand them, are enclosed and ventilated to the outside of the home, obviously. So, so maybe that's a little bit different, but that's a really good point. I appreciate you, you bringing that in. A lot of people are talking about uh, uh, kitchenware, like, like uh, pans, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what's, why am I drawing a blank? But like the stick, what's the word I'm looking for? The non-stick pans? Yeah. You know, the Teflon and mm-hmm. stuff like that, the pans with all the sprays. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. Uh, and this from Ben. I like this, Ben. Ben is essentially quoting Oscar Wilde. He says, as adults, everything in moderation, right? As long as it's not causing harm. I like that Oscar Wilde clip. I always thought it was Nikki Six that said it, but Nikki <laughs> Six was quoting Oscar Wilde, everything in moderation, including moderation. 80s Fanify says it was a li- lifelong coffee drinker until recently. After a bout with COVID, uh, my resting heart rate stayed elevated. Who says the doctor's recommendation? Cut the caffeine. I did, and my heart rate has dropped. And then says, yeah, that's a tough one to swallow. Mm-hmm. I have noticed, if you don't mind me telling a tale outside of school here, uh, you and I used to used to share a coffee before we'd, we'd go yeah, we'd and do, do a the whole show pot every day. Before the show pot and you, I don't show. think I don't think you've had a sip of coffee for, for all of January. I haven't had much. I think I've had one. But and I, it's early starts for yeah. us. You so doing I, okay? Uh, well, I am. Oh, boy, I switched over to like kind of a sports drink, which I put a scoop of in, yeah. which has less caffeine and, and less of everything. It's just, it's a diuretic. Is it Coke too. Zero? No, it's not Coke Zero. <laughs> but also I've been drinking tea too. But like coffee, like I just noticed how less dehydrated I am now during the day. Yeah. But, but I drink a ton more water as well. But yeah. You told me that one day here. I was like, oh, I'm so thirsty. I'm going to have a coffee. You're like, you realize that's like not what you're supposed to do. Yeah, it's kind of like the opposite <laughs> of what you're supposed to do. It's like drinking a glass of salt water. I mean, it's not exactly, but it's. Yeah, I'm thirsty. Let me just crush a big coffee. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, listen, um, you know, hey, we're having a lot of fun right here. I feel like we're just hanging out, but, but we do have some business to get to uh, because you're coming up, my friends, on your last opportunity, your final opportunity to take advantage of the Jasper in January offerings. This is a really, really special month out in Jasper National Park. And so we want to put it in the spotlight in this week's edition of My Jasper Memories presented by our amazing friends at Tourism Jasper. So, of course, coming up in just a couple of days, it's the third and final weekend of Jasper in January. And so darn right, I'm sounding the alarm. If you haven't gotten out there yet, I am calling on you to treat yourself to consider a spontaneous getaway to the mountains. And there's a couple of wonderful reasons, a few, in fact, I want to talk to you about to drop everything and head out to Jasper. Number one, they've got a big street party and fireworks coming up. You don't get fireworks very often in Jasper for a number of different reasons, but you do. During the wrap to Jasper in January, you can party the night away on Patricia Street. 
They've got live music. And by the way, while I'm talking, if you want to check out jasper.travel slash January, you can learn more about what's coming up, including on their events link. So Patricia, Speed, uh, Patricia Street will be hosting this party coming up this weekend. Uh, it's going to be the 28th of January. And so that's one you won't want to miss. That's Saturday night. This Saturday night coming up, live music, local market stalls, food vendors, an ice bar. What? Light installations, family fun. I feel like I can smell it. I can hear it. I can feel the vibe right now. Plus... Edmonton's number one party band is going to be out there live on stage in Jasper. They're doing a little bit of a roadie themselves, heading west on the 16. So after Battle of the Bands champion, the Barkells are going to perform. The Barkells from 7 to 9 p.m. So much fun. And then, of course, you can finish the night off with a bang. Fireworks are going to light up the sky over Centennial Park at 9.30 Saturday night. There is also the pond hockey tournament that's going on. This is through the weekend, but you still have time to sign up. Jasper uh, is hosting its annual pond hockey tournament on beautiful Lake Mildred on the Fairmont property at the Jasper Park Lodge from the 27th to the 29th. So that's Friday through Sunday. Experience hockey as it should be played on a frozen lake with all of your best friends. From Friday to Sunday at the Fairmont JPL, a four-on-four pond hockey tournament you will never forget. You can register your team right now with Canadian Hockey Enterprises and and get a package deal that will include a two-night stay at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge and a meal voucher to their Italian restaurant Orso, which is stunning. That one on the shores of Lac Beauvert. So you can get full event details and discover more fun events like fat biking and wine tasting and everything else that makes this month a must-visit month. Check out jasper.travel slash January. And when you visit, if you're posting on Instagram or Twitter, we'd love for you to use the hashtags MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. And your Jasper memories could be featured in a future episode right here on Real Talk, presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper. Can you hear the skate blades cutting the ice on <laughs> Lake Mildred? Oh, my gosh. So great. Real talk coming up tomorrow. Uh, we are going to have an interesting conversation about, I know, brace yourself. You hate to hear the word. You're sick of hearing it, and it's impacting every single one of us, but inflation, because there's going to be a probably an announcement tomorrow morning that's going to change the game again and we want you to have the insight as soon as possible what adjustments do you need to make to your bottom line and what does this mean for the rest of the country plus our real talk roundtable on friday presented by urban timber who is this progressive pack and what are they trying to do real talk is hosted by ryan jesperson Executive Producer, Josh Dunford. Technical Producer, John Hicks. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. 
Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.